All right, and welcome to the Panda Pod. We have a very special episode for you today. Oh, I don't like very special episode given the topics we're talking about. Makes it sound like after school special, but sounds like an episode of Blossom or something. I just don't like the term special anymore. It needs to go away. One of you knows what Blossom is. Who's Blossom? Uh. Wait, no, it's it's the lady from the Big Bang Theory who's now the host of Jeopardy. But... Oh, Amy! Amy Farrah Fowler! I know who that is. Okay, she was Blossom first. See, this is why we can't record episodes without Raquel, okay? <laughs> Somebody else has to be as old as me and remember these things. I can't just be out here on my own remembering 90s stuff without anyone to support me. We need Raquel. I can't do this. All by myself. Okay. Okay. We're done. Episode is completely off the rails. First of all, what are we even talking about? And since when does Jack introduce the episode? I think Jack is like, oh my God, just say words that Jack I can is, edit. He's so mad that we call him a producer and not a co-host. I feel like he's secretly seething about this and he's trying to take over the episode. Do you want to be a producer host? That sounds like more work. <laughs> well, you're already <laughs> producing it. And like, you already say things. That's all like, that's not. You know, you're already doing some of those things. Well, even came prepared with joke once. Okay, sorry. Welcome to the Panda Pod. This is not a very special episode because we don't do that. I am one of your hosts, Michelle Bishop, Voter Access and Engagement Manager at the National Disability Rights Network. And I'm Stephanie Flint, Public Policy Analyst here at the National Disability Rights Network. Our third host, Raquel, is on vacation, and we are very happy for her about that. So you'll hear her a little later in the episode, but, you know, not right now. I think we do have a big announcement. Stephanie, we are supposed to make a shout out to one of our loyal listeners. Yeah, yeah. Also, too, if you guys are interested or would... If you guys would like a shout out, feel free to email us and we'll take a poll on whether or not we actually want to shout you out. You can also use our email that I honestly forgot that we had until now, podcast at ndrn.org. It's just the way that it sounds and is spelled. Uh, but the shout out that we are going to give this week is to one of our very own who works at Disability Rights Oregon, David Boyer, unless he's moved and not told anybody. Which is possible. But yes. yay, Boyer, thank you for listening. Or if you use Stephanie's screen reader, you're Dave Boyer. Boyer, something like that. Boyer, Boyer. Which, so, is, yeah. which is the same person, except when he wears a ham- fancy hat or speaks French. Yes, yes, I'm here. I really want to see Dave Boyer speak French. I keep, I, I, you know, I was about to say, I don't think he knows French, but as soon as I say that, I'm going to get like a phone call or an email in French from We'll him. get an entire email. Yes. In French from Dave. But in yeah, French. thank you so much for being one of our awesome, loyal listeners and your wish has been granted. And, um, Nala was very upset that you were not at annual conference, but we understand that you have all the things and important things to do. So. Nala is Stephanie's service dog, if you don't know Nala. And yay to our loyal listeners. We love you. Keep tuning in. And of course, also shout out to our producer, Jack Rosen. We appreciate you, Jack. I'm sorry we berate you every episode. Yes, bless your heart, y'all. He really has to put up with a lot. I feel really bad for him because we have like 15 minutes of pre-recording. And sometimes he's like, thank God I'm not recording this. And then sometimes he's like, I should have been recording this. So bless his heart. Thank you, Jack, for all that you do. He just spends an inordinate amount of time listening to me and Stephanie and Raquel blabber about basically anything. So yes. we do appreciate you, Jack. Thank you, guys. And Michelle, why don't you tell the folks why it's a don't say very special, special episode. Not very special, <laughs> special episode. 
this episode of the podcast, we're going to be talking about disability justice, the disability justice movement. And if you're thinking, I'm pretty sure she means disability rights movement, I do not. We are going to be talking specifically about a newer wing of the movement called disability justice, which has kind of a a fresh new focus and is really about being much more inclusive and intersectional in our approach to disability rights work. So toward that end, we have an amazing interview for you today with uh, the Disability Justice Initiative, which is part of the Center for American Progress. Yes, yeah, super, super excited to to hear about this. I feel like a lot of people, you know, while, while in some ways they complement each other, the disability justice and the disability rights movement are, you know, things that we don't always think about, you know, I, I know that I personally have not, you know, always thought about disability justice always in the context of disability rights. And so I'm so excited uh, to have the opportunity to, um, to listen through these interviews, but yes, totally excited, super excited. Uh, We are definitely looking forward to hearing, to hearing about this movement and to hearing about this unique perspective. I feel like I learned something new every single episode and yeah, I, I'm super excited to keep on learning and I hope that all of you listeners continue to share that sentiment. So yeah. Mia Ives Rubley is the director for the Disability Justice Initiative at the Center for American Progress. Prior, she has worked with Families Belong Together, DC Action Lab, Adoptees for Justice, Fair Fight, People's Collective for Justice and Liberation, and numerous political campaigns. At the Ford Foundation in 2019, Ives Rubley created a disability inclusion toolkit for nonprofit organizations. But Mia is perhaps best known for founding the Women's March, the Disability Caucus, and helping to organize the original Women's March on Washington in 2017. She was named by Glamour Magazine as one of 2017's Women of the Year by She the People as one of 20 women of color in politics to watch in 2020 and awarded the 2019 Distinguished Alumni Award from the University of North Carolina School of Social Work. Mia holds a bachelor's degree in sociology from the University of Illinois at Urban-Champaign and a master's degree in social work from the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. Welcome, Mia. Super excited to have you on the podcast this month. So glad to be here. Again, thank you so, so much for joining us. Would you mind starting off uh, by telling us what the disability justice movement is? Yeah, the disability justice movement or framework was actually something that was developed by, you know, a group of Black, Brown, queer, and trans people. It included people like Patty Byrne, Mia Mingus, Stacey Melbrom, Leroy Moore Jr., um, Eli Clare, and Sebastian Market. And what they did was they saw that there was a difficulty in really being able to focus on sort of some of the most impacted folks within the disability community. And so they created basically a, a structure or a framework that was able to, to look at how disability and ableism relates to other forms of oppression and identity. And it requires sort of an understanding that disability is an identity that cannot be siloed away from other identities because there are disabled people with multiple marginalized identities. Mia, could you 
talk to us a little bit about how disability justice relates to what we would call the old school disability rights movement. Yeah, you know, the old school disability rights movement was sort of focused on pretty much solely around accessibility accommodations and, you know, education, employment. The problem was, was that it was very white centered um, in terms of or it utilizes a white sort of lens to address a lot of the problems that were impacting the disability community. And I think that a lot of people who didn't fit that framework, including women, you know, including uh, folks who identify as trans or LGBTQ or um, were Black, Brown, um, Asian, all of these individuals didn't feel like they that a lot of the issues that they were impacted by, including things like criminal justice, reproductive health care access, et cetera, were actually being addressed by sort of the, the, the disability rights movement. And so they wanted to create a, a structural understanding and a movement towards sort of a collective liberation. So an understanding that, you know, disability was a, a part of an identity, but it wasn't a single part. And that all of these individuals needed to be collectively together to work towards change that would actually sort of work in tangent with other justice movements, including issues around racial justice, around, you know, uh, reproductive justice, etc. So it followed a lot along the lines of those justice movements and saying, you know, look, we're not addressing the full pantheon of issues that affect particularly marginalized communities. So how can we make sure that we address them and create more of a community and a collective liberation? Mia, on that point, can you tell us a little bit more about the 10 principles of disability justice that guide this movement? Yeah, you know, again, I got to give props to the group that really started and helped put together this framework. I think a lot of individuals who don't understand disability justice actually don't know that there are these 10 principles, right? A lot of people utilize disability rights and disability justice interchangeably, not understanding that there's actually a structure and a framework for disability justice that one has to go and utilize in order to be truly and faithfully towards what this group of individuals created, right? Um, and so, you know, there's there's 10 principles. And the first principle is intersectionality. It's a term that, again, much like disability justice, is being utilized in a lot of different ways that it wasn't intended to be utilized as. The term was developed by Kimberly Crenshaw, who uh, is a sort of a sociologist and a law professor who was looking at the perspective of Black women and their experiences with not only racism, but also sexism and how those can interlink to each other, not as in like, this is a checkbox of, oh, this person has this and this. It's saying, how do these systems interact with each other and create a unique experience for Black women. Luckily, that terminology and that understanding was expanded by her as she was hearing the experiences of other individuals, including the disability community. 
And so one of the principles in intersectionality is an understanding, much like Audrey Lord, who who also has a disability, stated, we do not live single issue lives and we don't experience things in a single issue way. And so it talks about how ableism is coupled with all of these other isms, you know, and talks about white supremacy and capitalism and, you know, heteropatriarchy, et cetera, and tries to explain how individuals who are multi-marginalized experience the world in a different manner that can degrade or uh, negates their ability to interact with the world in a fan, fair manner. So the second principle is leadership of the most impacted, which is pretty much what it says right there, right? It's stating that, you know, a lot of times we create these movements, but they're often led by people who aren't actually the ones that are being affected by the issue. Take disability rights. A lot of disability rights fight has been actually done by parents who are not impacted or the disability rights movement is uh, often led by white men. Um, so what the disability justice movement says is, no, we don't want that to happen anymore. We actually want the people who are most marginalized, people who are black, people who are queer, et cetera, to be the ones that are leading the charge, particularly on specific areas within the disability community, leading the conversation and leading the discussion around what should change. So that's leadership of the most impacted. The third area is an anti-capitalist politic. And this is where a lot of people get tripped up. So an anti-capitalist politic is an understanding that ableism actually stems from capitalism. And so in an economy that basically puts a dollar amount on your ability to commodify yourself, we can't overtake ableism unless we talk about the intrinsic problems with capitalism. And the fact that if you have a non-conforming body or mind that can't quote unquote produce, then you're always going to be seen as less than in a society that runs on capitalism. The next uh, principle is commitment to cross-movement organizing. I think this is something that we've seen has been a difficulty in the disability community. And I don't think it's just because the disability community doesn't want to interact with the group, I think, or, or other movements. I think it's a, both uh, the in, inner and outer forces that are causing disability to often be siloed on its own. And some of that has to do with the fact that a lot of times the disability rights movement doesn't really address the issues that multi-marginalized communities face. Like we're not great at talking about the criminal justice system. We're not great about talking about reproductive justice issues. And so that often leaves us siloed. And I think that what disability justice wants for folks to do is learn how to work amongst each other and not just be allies, but be sort of comrades and be co-conspirators um, so that you're not working isolated and that you're working amongst lots and lots of issues so that you can collaborate and create power uh, through solidarity. The next principle is interdependence. I think this is a really important key part and I think it goes towards sort of the last principle, which is collective liberation as well. 
And it's an understanding that we have to meet each other's needs in order to build towards liberation. So it's an understanding that we have to help each other out within the community. I think a lot of times what happens is we get caught up in life and sometimes we forget that, you know, we should be giving back to our community. We should be counting on one another to build community and to build that trust and to build resources within our community so that we can be stronger and so that we can build towards liberation. The next principle is collective access, which basically it relates to the interdependence and collective liberation, which is an understanding that we need to be in community with each other. And that we need to provide access to one another. So if I gain access to something, I should keep the door open for all others to be able to gain access to the similar resources that I've had access to. So it's a collectivism ideal of sharing. And then collective liberation, of course, is saying that nobody should be left behind. And that is pretty self-explanatory. I believe, um, and that we can't, you know, get liberation without ensuring that everybody is liberated. We can't create a revolution and more equality if we don't collectively do it. And then I think I did miss one of them, which was a commitment to cross-disability solidarity, which I think is extremely needed, particularly in the fact that so many of our disability organizations right now are so focused on one specific disability or the other. You know, we have disability orgs that are just focused on physical disabilities. And then we have some orgs that are just focused on chronic illnesses or another that is just focused on like intellectual disabilities. And the problem is, is that we've sort of unfortunately created a bit of a, an unbalance of powers within the disability community where, you know, individuals who particularly have developmental or intellectual disabilities or mental health disabilities don't feel like they're part of the community. And, you know, I'm sure that stems from a lot of different things, including our own internal ableism. But what this calls for is to understand that we can't fight for one disability and think that we're going to get the rights our rights restored or have access to our rights. We need to build it for all of our community. So that's that's the basics for, for disability justice. Yeah, if our listeners want to learn more or get involved in the movement, where should they start? That's a great question. And I think for me, whenever I'm trying to learn about a new subject is I try and go to the source, right? I try and find out more about it. And I, I really do believe that you know, doing your reading, learning about the history of disability justice, learning, reading from the individuals who develop um, disability justice is another great thing. Read the principles, read the essays that, that these individuals have written about disability justice, and do your homework. You know, I know it, it sounds boring, but I think that's one of the best ways to get started and then, you know, get involved in organizations that utilize a disability justice lens and and continue thinking about how to build uh, more inclusive environments and communities that, that really instill some of these principles within them. 
Thank you so much, Mia, for spending time with us and for giving us so much food for thought. I think when we look at the disability, move, you know, justice movement and disability rights movement, um, there's a lot to unpack. And I feel that you've really um, enlightened us today with how we can deepen our advocacy, deepen our alliance with uh, disabled people of color and uh, who belong to myriad communities. Thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, you're the best. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so glad that you invited me on today. Awesome. Well, that was a super enlightening interview. I know that I learned a whole lot about the disability justice movement, and I hope that all of you got to learn something new today as well. And we have a special treat coming up. I had the privilege of having an awesome, super enlightening conversation with Maddie Crawley. They are the social media and content specialist for Disability Rights Florida. And we both got to talk about our experiences of being LGBTQIA and multiply disabled. And I hope that you guys find this enlightening and hopefully enjoy this conversation as much as we enjoyed having it. So yeah, here is our conversation with Maddie. All right, we have come to the part of the episode where we have our spotlight story and y'all and I and we are all in for a very special treat today. I'm super excited to have Maddie from Disability Rights Florida with us today. Uh, Maddie, introduce yourself to the people. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Hi, everyone. My name is Maddie. I use they, them, or she, her pronouns. Um, I'm a non-binary white person. I identify as multiply disabled um, and within the LGBTQ community, and I'm comfortable with a lot of different identities, whether it's lesbian, queer, you know, your, your batch of identities. But yeah, I'm really excited to be here and chatting with you all and look forward to talking. Yeah, of course. And we are so excited to have you here. As most of us know, or as all of us know, um, June is Pride Month. Super exciting time of year, super different time of year considering all the things that are, are going on. But today we really want to talk a lot about, I was, it's interesting. I was talking with Maddie before, before we started recording and I was like, we are totally twinsies because we both <laughs> identify as LGBTQ and multiply disabled. And, you know, it's one of those things where we've seen that there are a lot of folks who are LGBTQ and disabled and yet a lot of the time we see that in the LGBTQ community, accessibility isn't always prioritized. Yeah, for sure. I think that's one of the, I, you know, I, I enjoy Pride Month. I've actually yet to go to an actual Pride celebration, but I hope one year I'm able to. But yeah, that's actually like one of my kind of disappointments within LGBTQ space as a space that <laughs> prides itself on being inclusive and welcoming of all genders and sexualities and, and walks of life, right? Oftentimes, folks with disabilities don't have the access to participate fully in their LGBTQ plus identities in that space because of inaccessibility and barriers and kind of a lack of inclusion planning for, you know, LGBTQ folks with disabilities. So it's it's something that I really hope will change with time. And I think it, it already has gotten better. And some folks have uh, become more aware of disability, accessibility, and identity, but definitely has much more to go. Yeah, absolutely. And I totally agree. And I think a part of that is, you know, 
And I'm not saying, you know, this is everyone, but I think that a lot of the LGBTQ community doesn't necessarily think about this first, right? You know, usually when you are thinking about how to make things inclusive of everyone, unfortunately, disability is usually on the back burner just Mm -hmm. in general. I don't think that it's anybody trying to purposefully discount disability. But yeah, I mean, you know, when we talk about accessibility, it's such a broad term, you know, whether it be physical accessibility to, you know, an establishment that caters mostly to LGBTQ patrons, whether it's, you know, accessibility in terms of folks with sensory disabilities, you know, whether it's accessibility in terms of ASL being offered at different shows and, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. It's, it's mm-hmm. something that I think a lot of some people, and I, I totally agree with you there, right? I feel like a lot of people are now starting to think more about it because there is a lot more education around it. And so that's, that's definitely been great to see. And, you know, as Bob Dylan says, the times, they are a change in. <laughs> no, definitely. And I think, you know, something else we were chatting a bit about was kind of just the some of the like violent histories of folks mm-hmm. um, within disability communities, but also the LGBT communities, like they've kind of been weaponized against each other by folks in power. So, you know, LGBTQ folks were medicalized as having mental illnesses or being disabled to justify different laws or different barriers or, you know, a whole host of things, right? But then and then the opposite way, like sometimes people automatically think like if you're disabled, you're, you know, have a host of other marginalized identities because, I don't know, people just have a way of just automatically kind of assuming the worst about people and not that, you know, being LGBTQ or disabled is a bad thing at all. I think there's just a lot of historical overlap that kind of makes bridging the communities a bit difficult because rightfully so, there's a lot of harm that needs to be kind of worked through and discussed. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there are a lot of people, particularly uh, those who are anti-LGBTQ, that are just looking for something to blame in Mm -hmm. terms of somebody being LGBTQ and to justify the quote unquote choice of that person. And so, you know, when they're looking at that, they're like, oh, well, it's because they're disabled. Like Mm -hmm. I, I am a blind queer woman and I have been told that, oh, well, the reason you don't like men is because you can't see how attractive they are. And I just... Yeah, Yeah. it's nauseating. (laughs) It's nauseating. Well, one thing that I'm definitely very curious to know, and I'm sure our listeners um, are very curious to know, because a lot of us have our own connotations of what pride particularly means to each and every one of us. And so I was wondering if you would mind telling the people, what does pride mean to you specifically? That's such a wonderful question. And honestly, something I'll transparently sometimes reconcile a lot with because Mm -hmm. I didn't identify within the LGBTQ community until a few years ago. So I'm still kind of navigating that space personally and kind of understanding who I am. And I came out as queer earlier on than non-binary later. So it's just kind of understanding who I am and then more like further becoming a part of the community as I've been ready to or comfortable in myself. But I think like pride to me is like that process and like how, you know, LGBTQ folks hold each other in that process because every 
person in the community will tell you that coming out or, you know, navigating cis heteropatriarchy is a huge struggle. Mm -hmm. And I think just like the community's ability to hold people and new people within the community is something I'm really proud about because that's like a huge form of love that I've been able to accept and experience in the time that I've navigated my identities. And I think pride in that in that vein is like ever evolving. I think your experience with how you identify and how you relate to others and find communities like ever changing. So I think pride for me is just like that whole experience of community. Absolutely. In a community that, you know, encourages each other, supports each other. I remember coming out like officially, quote unquote, coming out on Facebook a few years back. And I just remember getting different messages from folks going love and support. I'm so excited for you. Welcome to, you know, welcome to the other side, you know, in that (laughs) sense. But, you know, people are so quick to just say, hey, you know, come out when you're ready, you know, do what you need to do when you're ready. And, you know, we will be here to welcome you with open arms and really and truly for what it's worth for me, at least I've noticed that, being queer and disabled, I feel like I'm just on this journey of self-discovery. And to be yeah. honest with you, I don't think that's ever going to change. So mm. I'm just kind of along for the ride. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. And I think that's something that like kind of to the beginning of the conversation that a lot of people may find uncomfortable and like maybe not be able to understand because people, some people are just so concrete and firm in their identities that they may feel discomfort and like it being ever changing. But I think because disability is, you know, always changing your experience within your body or or acquiring a disability or whatever it may be, like that's ever changing in the same way sexuality and gender can. And I think that's a really cool experience that disabled queer folks get to like talk about and like share space with each other about that maybe non-disabled LGBTQ folks can't necessarily connect to in that same way. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so, so, so much for sharing your perspective. I know that I have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation today. I know that our listeners will get a lot out of this and yeah, happy pride. Hopefully you'll get to go to a pride celebration (laughs) soon. I will say there's nothing like your first pride celebration. Always, always fun, always a joy, but yeah, thank you so, so much for joining us today. Thank you. It was great to be on. That was awesome. Maddie, thank you so much for sharing your story. This has been, has this been a very special episode? Nope. No, I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to say that. But it is June, which means we thank everyone who came out for our annual conference. We were in Phoenix, Arizona earlier this month. It was amazing to see you. Thank you to Mia for talking to us about the disability justice movement. If that's not something that you're currently using in your framework as a PNA about how you think about the work that we do, we'd love to put you in touch with folks like Mia to talk about it more. And also just happy Pride Month everyone. Woohoo! Happy Pride, guys! Oh no, Stephanie, do you still have a joke this month? Of course I do! I have pride in my jokes. So, who's ready for this one? I'm not, but go for it. Okay, so there are two terms to describe a dog who like to take bath. What are they? Anyone want to guess? A pool noodle retriever? You're close in some respects. So one of the terms is a shampoodle. And then the other term is a Bassett town. Oh, man. 
<laughs> oh man, this is the best part of the episode where I get to laugh at my own jokes. Hopefully you guys find them as funny as I do. Without Raquel here to give you that polite laughter she does every time you tell a joke. I know, I know. Well, Jack, you're just going to have to do that in Raquel's place. But yeah, I think that that is all that we have for this episode. If you guys are wanting a shout out similar to David Boyer's, feel free to email us at podcast at ndrn.org. Or I guess you can use our personal email addresses if you're that interconnected with us. But until then, see y'all in July. Bye. I think he only answers to Boyer now. But also, guys, we promise not to record any more episodes without Raquel. It just goes off the rails way too fast. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next month. And you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at NDRN Advocates. And you can follow us on LinkedIn at National Disability Rights Network, as well as check out our website, www.ndrn.org. Until next time, see you, folks.